I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About the Public. Contemporary people belong to many publics. Whether you're an environmentalist, or a supporter of public broadcasting, a lover of ballet or baseball, you belong to a notional association, united by some preference or political opinion, most of whose members you don't know. A public. It's a form of social participation that we pretty much take for granted. But in the early 16th century, it was entirely novel. Association, if you think of it in feudal terms, is something that is mandated, in some sense, by heaven. That is to say, there are these orders and degrees, and you're born into your station. You're not born into a public. Nobody's born into a public. It's not something given in the order of things as you encounter reality. Some, it's something that you simply become a part of by choosing to participate. One of the events that made this more voluntary form of association possible was the cataclysm that shattered the unity of Western Christendom, the Protestant Reformation. The issues at stake were theological and at the same time deeply political. Societies were torn apart by controversies about such things as whether God is physically present in the bread and wine that Christians call the sacrament or the host. The question of sacramental presence becomes, in a way, the flashpoint for thinking about matters constitutional. We have to, in some sense, suspend everything we've learned from the Enlightenment to begin to grasp that, because we've been taught for centuries to separate the discourse of religion from the discourse of politics. But when you go back to the 16th century, where the king is, you might say, the walking, living host, you know, God on earth, you have to realize that thinking about the sacrament is thinking about kingship. Questions about religious dogma were also questions about the foundations of political authority. And what people thought about these questions suddenly mattered. In the churchyard of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, for example, there stood a raised pulpit, Paul's Cross it was called, and large crowds would gather beneath it to hear sermons in which the church and state authorities sought to justify themselves before this new public. What happens at Paul's Cross, this regular weekly outdoor preaching, brings into being something quite recognizably modern. It creates the first instance, I would argue, of what we would call a public sphere, where it's thought to be important not only to impose a religious and constitutional arrangement on the people, but to actually convince them that this is the right arrangement, that it matters, that they consent to this. How the Reformation engendered this first instance of a public sphere is our subject today on Ideas, as we continue with David Cayley's series, The Origins of the Modern Public. Here's David Cayley. For a thousand years, it seems, Christians believed that when they gathered to eat their communion meal of bread and wine, they ate the body and blood of their Lord, as he had asked them to do at the Last Supper. If anyone ever asked during that first millennium of Christianity, is this bread really his body? The question has left no trace. Then, in the 11th century after his death, doubts began to arise. Surely the bread and wine were only signs pointing to some ineffable reality and not the actual body and blood of Christ. At first, these doubts were confined to the margins of the church. But by the early 16th century, they had become urgent, and the question of what occurs during the Mass became one of the issues that touched off the Protestant Reformation. Reformers like Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich began to openly deny the doctrine of the real presence, as it was called. Torrance Kirby is professor of ecclesiastical history in the Department of Religious Studies at McGill. He's also part of an ambitious, multidisciplinary research project called Making Publics, which has spent the last five years investigating the new forms of association that created 
a new idea of the public in early modern Europe. His special interest has been the way in which Reformation religious controversy fostered what he calls a culture of persuasion. And one of the controversies he has followed is the one around transubstantiation, the doctrine that the bread and wine mysteriously become the actual body and blood of Christ. He begins by giving Zwingli's view. Zwingli held the view that the uh, bread and the wine of the sacrament was merely a sign that pointed beyond itself to a heavenly reality that was utterly transcendent and inaccessible to the senses. There was no way in which, for Zwingli, God could be present on the altar in the elements. So that if there is a question of presence, well, for Zwingli, you might say the presence was something utterly removed from anything physical. Uh, and in fact, there is no real presence would be a fair way of describing his position, but there's a memorial of presence. And so his position is antithetical, one would say, to the received orthodox teaching about the conversion of the elements of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Many other reformers held views similar to Zwingli's. In France, a circle of humanists, which included at times John Calvin and François Rabelais, also argued that the Mass, as it was being celebrated, was, in Zwingli's words, a gross affront to the dignity of Christ's unique sacrifice. One of the leaders of this French group was Antoine de Marcourt, whose public condemnation of what he called the horrible abuse of the papal mass initiated one of the Reformation's most dramatic episodes, the so-called Affair of the Placards. Marcourt wrote a denunciation on a poster, a one-page piece, a denunciation of the doctrine of the Mass and of transubstantiation. And overnight, this is in October 1534, this appeared all over Paris. It even appeared in the king's own apartments. Now, how it got in there, nobody is quite certain, but uh, it was clearly a direct challenge to both religious and political authority. And um, it caused an absolute uproar, the ultimate consequence of which was that very quickly, anybody with an evangelical inclination among this group of people had to hightail it out of France. Those who didn't make it out of France, some of them were imprisoned and some were even executed. So that was, there was a great purge. The affair of the placards might have gone down in history as the symbolic moment when the French Reformation began. Comparable to the 95 theses Martin Luther posted on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in Saxony, or Henry VIII's break with Rome in England. But the response of the French authorities was so swift, so thorough, and so punitive that France was set on a dramatically different course than England, Germany, or the Low Countries. And what this response shows, according to Torrance Kirby, is just how political theological issues could be at this date. What I find kind of interesting about the episode of the placard was that if you look at the, uh, the aftermath, the, um, the city of Paris, and, and in fact not just Paris but other cities in France where the placard had appeared, were ritually cleansed. So in Paris, the doctors of the Sorbonne, the Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, and you know various ecclesiastics and so on went in solemn procession through the city with incense and holy water to cleanse all of these sites where this poster had been placed because, of course, this was sacrilegious to denounce the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist. The interesting thing about this procession, I think, is that at the end of the procession, under a canopy, you have Francis Le Premier, Francis himself, under the canopy where you would expect to find the host being carried in a Corpus Christi procession. So what looks in every respect like a Corpus Christi procession in this attempt to reconsecrate the city after this uh, violation, this uh, pollution, you might say, that of, of the attack upon the mass, the king, in a kind of dramatic way, underlines the assumption that if there is no real presence of Christ in the sacrament, there can be no real presence of Christ in his anointed ruler. So that the question of the stability of the monarchy is directly tied 
to the question of transubstantiation. I mean, it seems in a way to a post-Enlightenment point of view, I mean, this looks like an absurdity. You know, how could uh, the authority of a sovereign and a monarchical constitution be so intimately tied to a question of whether there was presence or not of of Christ's body and blood uh, in the sacrament on the altar. And yet, clearly, uh, the propaganda of this procession proclaims, and, you know, various things written about it make, make this clear, that this question of presence, Eucharistic presence, is uh, deeply political in its implication. Corpus Christi, the Latin words for the body of Christ, was one of the great feasts and spectacles of the medieval church. The Blessed Sacrament was paraded through the streets under a canopy, and mystery plays were performed. The French king adopted this form of procession and inserted himself in the place of the sacrament in order to make explicit the connection between the doctrine of the real presence and his own authority. At stake, Torrance Kirby says, was the question of how the divine is present in the world. Is it a physical order in which sacred rites, holy places, and sanctioned authorities are actual instances of the divine? Or is it a symbolic order that faith brings to life within the believer? What's, I think, implicated in the transubstantiation question is really how you understand the mode by which the divine is communicated to humanity. And those who reject transubstantiation really take the high Augustinian line that there is no way in which through the physicality, through the sensuous, that there can be any touching of the one with the other, that you can't have an objectified presence in physical elements, that there can't be presence without some inner recognition on the part of the believer that the conscience of the worshiper, in some sense, is, according to the opponents of transubstantiation, is necessarily the locus, you might say, the place of presence. The involvement and active participation of the believer is the key element in the Reformation's teaching about transubstantiation. With a doctrine of what Torrance Kirby calls objectified presence, the order of things is entirely indifferent to what people may think or feel, believe, or imagine. It just is. When transubstantiation takes place inwardly, as the Reformers believe that it did, the accent shifts to people's experience. And that is why Torrance Kirby thinks that the Reformed doctrine of transubstantiation was such a crucial step towards a world in which people's private convictions began to matter. The real transformation of substance is something that happens within the individual worshiper. And I would argue that, that if you want to sort of see how transubstantiation really has an importance for this transition to modernity, it has to do with this new way of thinking about the relation of science to things signified and the new importance given to recognition on the part of the individual. In some sense, the individual subject becomes the primary locus of presence in a way that would have been regarded as heretical under the traditional teaching about what sacramental presence was. And if my reading of that is correct, it seems to me that there's a way in which this new understanding of what sacraments are lends support to this new emergent culture of persuasion, that to be persuaded of the reality of presence is perhaps the most important element of the sacrament, without which there cannot be a sacrament. Lawrence Kirby believes that the Reformation helped to bring into being what he calls a culture of persuasion. During the Middle Ages, the Christianity of the people had been deeply embedded in material practices. 
Theirs was a faith that was enacted and encountered within the sensible world of ritual and ceremony, of holy feasts and sacred places. The reformers wanted to prune back all this cultural underbrush and return to the Word of God. Their touchstone was the New Testament, which is called in Greek the Evangelion, or Good News, and for that reason they were called Evangelicals. Basically, the Evangelicals held that salvation, rather than being mediated primarily through the sacramental apparatus of the church through its sacraments, uh, its practices of penance and pilgrimage, and you might say the whole sensuous theurgy of medieval piety, came to the view that faith uh, and therefore salvation was transmitted through hearing. That is to say, by hearing the Evangelium, by hearing the gospel, thereby cutting out all of this stuff that previously had stood between Christians and God. The sacramental culture is displaced by a new culture of the word, or uh, I like to think of it in some sense as a culture of persuasion. So that not only is, you know, the primary means for the conveyance of religion, rather than being the sensuous sacraments uh, mediated by this hierarchy of clergy, rather the sacraments are mediated directly through the hearing of the word and through preaching, putting the Bible into the hands of the lay people, translating the Bible into the vernacular. In England, the evangelicals did not enjoy official favor in the early years of the reign of Henry VIII, which began in 1509. In 1521, Henry himself wrote a book against Martin Luther, in which he expressed his devotion to the papacy and for which he was rewarded by Rome with the title Defender of the Faith. William Tyndale's English translation of the New Testament was proscribed, and smuggled copies, printed in Germany, were seized and burned. Then, Torrance Kirby says, everything changed at Henry's court. It's sometimes called by scholars the evangelical moment of Henry VIII's reign. From the period of about, oh, 1532, uh, when uh, Henry is seeking divorce, from Catherine of Aragon down to the fall of Thomas Cromwell in 1540 and his execution. There's that sort of seven or eight year period where the evangelicals are in the ascendant and you have an enormous quantity of legislation being pushed through Parliament which changes England irrevocably into effectively, I think, a, a modern state. The social uh, face of England has changed dramatically. The monasteries are dissolved. The powers of the papacy are assumed by the crown. Uh, there's a whole new arrangement, a constitutional arrangement, that's brought into being by what's called the Reformation Parliament and the, a series of acts which change basic principles of governance in England. The Reformation dramatically reorganized English society. It altered the country's constitution and its culture. Political and economic power was redistributed. Long-established practices and deeply held beliefs were abolished at a stroke. One of the greatest ruptures was the end of monasticism. Between 1536 and 1541, supported by two parliamentary acts of suppression, as they were called, Henry was able to dissolve and disband over 800 monastic communities, or houses. They started with the smaller houses and then moved to the larger houses. Well, you have to think that 15 or 20 percent of England's population was religious, in this older sense of religious, that is to say living in these religious communities. You know, the monks were sort of left to their own devices. Some of them were pensioned. I mean, there was huge wealth attached to these religious houses. A lot of that wealth was simply expropriated by the crown. Uh, some of it was given away to the nobility. Uh, the Boleyn family, for example, uh, enriched themselves. Uh, numerous colleges at Oxford and Cambridge obtained this wealth, uh, mainly land and the income that came from it. But the monks themselves, you know, they're 
Many of them marry, and uh, some of them become parish clergy. Uh, but basically, they're, I mean, it's the biggest social dislocation of the 16th century. I mean, a, a pattern of life that had been in existence for almost a thousand years suddenly and abruptly came to a halt. And that, I think that's the measure of how you know committed Henry was to the Reformation, that he was willing to bring this absolutely central institution of English social life to a complete termination. Did you say 15 to 20 percent yeah, of the English feel, population yeah. were living in religious congregations? Yes, either, either as monks or as people serving the monks. It's a huge proportion of the population and, and a vast proportion of the wealth, maybe even more of the wealth of England, uh, because the houses, they were able to consolidate property. Uh, you know, they're much more efficient uh, in some sense at that because they are corporate entities. Uh, they don't have to divide their property up. Uh, I mean, of course, there's primogenitor for the aristocrats, but there's a way in which, you know, religious houses, uh, you know, increase and, and, and the church is hugely wealthy by the end of the Middle Ages. And so uh, the seizure of this wealth is a big event. The dissolution of the monasteries led not just to a redistribution of wealth, but also to a redistribution of the functions the monasteries had performed. The church had dominated education, for example. But now, cathedral schools were replaced by lay grammar schools. England is still dotted with King Edward grammar schools that were started during the reign of Henry's son, Edward VI. But the more secular society that began to emerge was still, in Torrance Kirby's view, a product of theological premises. The reformers and evangelicals wanted to place God beyond all earthly entanglements. They picked apart earth and heaven, and it was as a consequence of this separation that they cleared a space for a new kind of social life. If you distinguish the way the reformers do between the visible church and the invisible mystical church, the church as it is in heaven, the church beyond time, the church as the eternal kivitas dei, the city of God. The gap, you might say, between the visible church and the invisible church is enormous. In, in fact, under a sacramental logic, one of them gradually, as it were, ties into the other, that, that the ecclesiastical hierarchy is tied to the celestial hierarchy. And, you know, together they work, you might say, by steps and degrees to lead the soul up to heaven. What you have with the reformers' understanding of the church is this radical distinction between a celestial and an earthly reality of the church, such that the king of England can take over the governance of the church. Because we know that the visible church now is a simply human institution. You know, it has to be run, it has to be organized, but it has to be organized according to principles of governance that are essentially the same as those that organize human community, the commonwealth. And therefore, it seems to me that working out this question of royal supremacy is a kind of thinking about what the nature of the church is. And it's a moving beyond the assumption of the primacy of this hierarchical sacramental model to something new, something modern. The Reformation rethought the English church as a fallible human institution. Equally important, it made it a national institution, although this only finally happened when Elizabeth I came to the throne and put an end to her half-sister Mary's attempt to reimpose Roman Catholicism during the 1550s. Shortly after Elizabeth's accession in 1559, Parliament passed the Act of Uniformity, which mandated a common form of worship throughout her realm. With the act of uniformity, uh, you have a form of worship that's in the vernacular. That is to say, it's no longer being in Latin, of course. It's the language that's shared by the clergy and the people. It's in a common language throughout the whole of the kingdom. The same words are being heard weekly, uh, and in many cases by people daily, in every part of, of her dominion. And the scriptures, Tyndale's translation, is, of course, uh, being read during these services, so that the whole of England has a unified experience of language and religious identity through this uh, uniform worship. In the Middle Ages, there were many different religious usages up until 
Cranmer's composition of the Book of Common Prayer. There would be the use of Salisbury, the use of York, the use of Hereford. There was no common liturgy. And the, the first, England's first common liturgy for the whole of the realm was the English, was the vernacular liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer. The most universal experience that the English have of their own language, shared experience that they have of their own language prior to the foundation of the British Broadcasting Corporation is the Book of Common Prayer and the reading of Tyndale's Bible. Uh, and, you know, and of course this has got to be, you know, in some crucial way definitive of England's religious identity. Lawrence Kirby argues that the Reformation, in rethinking the nature of the church, also rethought the nature of society. Its rejection of what Kirby calls a sacramental view of society opened up a more secular space, a space that was less saturated by ritual and less repetitive in its rhythms. And in this space, he says, communication and persuasion took on a heightened significance. Sacraments were reinterpreted as depending on an inward persuasion of the worshiper, and hearing the word began to outweigh more ceremonial forms of participation in religious life. This made preaching a crucial institution, and sermons often drew large crowds. In London, people gathered at Paul's Cross, a raised outdoor pulpit in the churchyard of St. Paul's, the city's great cathedral. The audience would be huge. On, I mean, we have reports that uh, sermons preached in the early Elizabethan time, for example, uh, are said to have you know, attracted crowds in the thousands. And it would be an interesting cross-section, I think, of, of English, you know, particularly London society. It would be in some sense, like the theater. I mean, there would be uh, seats, you know, for the well-to-do, and the alderman and the mayor of London would be there in their appointed seats. Uh, they had some oversight of the uh, institution of the cross, by which I mean the pulpit. And then um, there's sort of the pit, you know, where uh, the vulgar mass could gather and listen. Uh, the best seats, of course, are reserved for the merchants and the nobility of uh, the city of London. And... Occasionally, the monarch would even put in an appearance to hear a sermon. Elizabeth, I think, went just once to hear a sermon at Paul's Cross. She preferred to have sermons preached to her at court. But it was really an extraordinary cultural event. I mean, in the sense that more people, in terms of raw numbers, would be hearing sermons regularly than would even go to the theater. You know, everybody was going to hear sermons. And in a world where maybe 10 or 15% of the people in this period that we're talking about are literate. Orality, the hearing of preaching, is, is where religion happens, rather than in reading. Torrance Kirby has been studying and compiling the sermons preached at Paul's Cross for a forthcoming book. He has found, as you would expect from what he has already said, that the two most popular subjects were transubstantiation, how is Christ present in the Mass, and the royal supremacy, why is the English monarch the proper head of the English church. He has concluded that the authorities who controlled access to the pulpit, through the preachers they sanctioned, were seeking to persuade the people who gathered at Paul's cross to their view. These listeners mattered, Kirby says, in a new way. The title of the project is Paul's Cross and the Culture of Persuasion, Tudor Origins of the Early Modern Public Sphere. So basically the, the idea here is to highlight public preaching as being in some sense the birth of modernity. That what happens at Paul's Cross, this regular weekly outdoor preaching, creates the first instance, I would argue, of what we would call a public sphere, where the primary mode uh, whereby subjects stand in relation to their, their rulers is one of persuasion. That it's thought to be important from Cromwell onwards not only to impose 
a religious and constitutional arrangement on the people, but to actually convince them that this is the right arrangement, that it matters, that they consent to this. Uh, so, so there's something new in that. There's nothing quite like that going on prior to the 1530s that I can think of. The listeners at Paul's Cross, in Torrance Kirby's view, were a public brought together by a matter that was of concern to them. No traditional tie or obligation required that they be there. Their attendance was voluntary. This is not an ordinary parish event. It's not obligatory. You don't have to, I mean, you could be fined, actually, in the 16th century for not attending your parish church. But the congregation that appears to hear an outdoor sermon there is a congregation of people who simply go because they want to hear what's being said there. There's no punishment for not going to hear a sermon there. People go because they're interested. It's like going to the theater in that sense. And, it, and you might say there's a sermon going public in the sense that there are these people who congregate on Sunday morning uh, in front of this stone pulpit because they know something interesting is going to be said there. And they come in the thousands. It's bigger than the theater in terms of popularity uh, by far. You know, more people heard sermons than probably ever saw a play of Shakespeare. It's a huge popular thing. It's one of the big entertainments in London, in fact. On occasion, riots even broke out. I mean, they're sort of raucous occasions. You know, there are people working through the crowds selling buns. I mean, this is, it's popular. But the, the main point about its being a public, that is to say, a sermon going public, is that one's presence there is something intrinsically voluntary. And I think that that's what I would regard as somehow the primary characteristic of publics, as we're talking about them in the context of this project, is hitherto association, if you think of it in feudal terms, is something that is mandated in some sense by heaven. That is to say, there are these orders and degrees, and you're born into your station. You're not born into a public. Nobody's born into a public. It's not something given in the order of things as you encounter reality. It's something that you simply become a part of by choosing to participate. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. Torrance Kirby's studies of the scene at Paul's Cross in 16th century London have convinced him that public discussion of religious questions creates, as he says, a first instance of a modern public sphere a space where people's opinions begin to matter. They matter, in the first place, because of the Protestant belief that inward persuasion is more important than outward observance. But they also matter because the doctrines of Christianity are now publicly disputed. In the Middle Ages, dissent from the teaching of the Church was heresy and was believed to be so threatening to the faith of others that it was punishable by death. Protestantism was mass heresy, sometimes abolishing overnight beliefs and practices that had been braided into popular ways of life for centuries. People had to suddenly decide for themselves what was true. Matt Milner is a postdoctoral fellow and a colleague of Torrance Kirby's in Making Publics, the McGill University-based research project from which I have derived this series of broadcasts. He's been interested in how people dealt with this new predicament of having to make up their own minds about things which the Church had previously decided for them. How do you know if this or that ritual is effective, if this or that experience is trustworthy, if this or that practice is the right one? How can you vindicate, how can you authenticate a religious practice and a belief. When Luther says justification by faith alone, he takes all of the practices of the church and he opens them up to empirical scrutiny. Pre-Reformation faith, the definition is 
viewed as being agreement with the church. So it includes insensible and metaphysical things, but it also includes practices which inform and, and describe those metaphysical beliefs and those mysteries. So it has, it has a dual component. If the medieval practice is agreement with what the church teaches and its modes of authenticating those practices, then what Luther is proposing is that faith is trust. Faith is fiducia, it's trust in the promise. And so it maintains its insensible form, but what it does is it cuts out those sensible things from being faith, per se, and makes them wholly human practices in a real and new way. And then that coupled with changes in terms of authority, in terms of access to scripture, for instance, opens up this gate where people can go and critique in a way that they, they didn't feel empowered or able to before, because faith is still insensible. It's, it's still maintaining this aura, but the things which had been, had been part of it are now no longer within its remit. They become aspects of rational discernment and empirical practice. How can you know that an image does what it says it does? If the church no longer is a, as a mode of authority or authentication, then how do you know? Is the image doing what it's supposed to do? Is it misrepresentative? Where can we find authority to give meaning or assign meaning to these types of objects? The objects Matt Milner is talking about here include liturgies, the prescribed forms of worship, practices like prayers for the dead or the veneration of saints, and the many holy images which had decorated medieval cathedrals and were now being stripped out by iconoclastic Protestants. Many Catholic rituals were outlawed, others were an open question. And this created very practical dilemmas for people, Milner says. They were forced into choices about, for example, whether to use the old stone receptacles in which children had been baptized, the baptismal fonts that stood in every church. We've got people who won't have their children baptized in fonts because it, there's the devil's water in there. People who have to have their children baptized in basins because the stones of the font are polluted and Catholic. The basin was prohibited in England, but it was a popular method in other Reformed churches. So by having your child baptized in a basin, or wanting to, or having a minister at the font and the, the vicar at the front with the basin, and having the baby sort of, well, which one do you want? That's a demonstration of, of an affinity. It's intentional. They are aware that they are doing this for a very particular reason. Another one is churching and whether women should go through this. this Could you say things. what the ritual of churching was it's, before um, you discuss? Churching was originally, it was a purification after childbirth and which the woman was brought into the church and a blessing was given for her, her safe delivery from the pains of childbirth and also safe delivery for the child. In Protestant Europe, that becomes a thanksgiving rather than a blessing. A lot of Reformed churches get rid of it. Most of them do. England keeps it. Um, and we've got instances where ministers refuse to actually go through with the rite, but women decide to church themselves by walking into a church and saying the service by themselves because the minister won't do it. Or we've got other ministers wanting to do it, women refusing to do it. So there's discussion about should you be doing this? There's writing about should you be actually be going to these rites and doing these things, the state is trying to impose this structure, but the woman's rejecting it. But she's rejecting it on account of an adherence to another group or a, a literature which she believes is important. As a result of the Reformation, Matt Milner says, people had to make conscious decisions about which religious practices they would accept, which reject. One could no longer, as formerly, simply do the done thing. Making such decisions involved deliberation, discussion with others, a declaration of one's position, and affiliation with others of like mind. This brought into being the new entity that Matt Milner and his colleagues call a public, a voluntary association based on common interest and open in structure and membership. The woman who churches herself, or who refuses churching, 
acts on a belief that she knows that she shares with others, even though those others may remain personally unknown to her. The Reformation was a seedbed of publics, Matt Milner suggests, because the interests at stake were so compelling. If we want to talk about self-interest being the crux of public making, private interest being the what brings people to these these entities, there really isn't any more basic self-interest than self-preservation. And that's, I think, what the, Re the Reformation is about. In a religious sense, it's about making sure you're doing the right thing. Because if you don't, you're damned. And there are a lot of opinions that emerge on how to do the right thing. And it's very difficult for them to, to disenfranchise or discredit other possible answers to that question. The idea that suddenly, okay, you know what? My beliefs don't necessarily just have to agree with the church to be valid. I can hold them of my own. That's not in itself the idea that beliefs have to be validated. That, that isn't something that is new, but there's somehow this empowerment that occurs with this religious conflict that does something that gives agency to these these individuals in a way that I don't think they had before. Even if it's a minute kind of, sort of like a mustard seed of something, it's there. Matt Milner argues that the Reformation fostered the creation of publics because people had to make up their own minds about contested practices, and in doing so, came to recognize the legitimacy of their own points of view. Another way in which the Reformation fostered new associations, in England in particular, was by shaking up the social structure of the country. This has been one of the interests of Robert Titler, another member of Making Publics, the academic research group whose work informs this series. He's also Professor Emeritus of History at Montreal's Concordia University. He says that the Reformation made England a less corporate society. The Reformation creates a much freer, uncredentialized—let me rephrase that. It creates the possibility of a much freer and less credentialized kind of life. People need not as much now, I think, think of themselves in terms of being a member of this parish, a member of that guild, a common holder in a particular manner who owes uh, service to his lord, a labor service, that all comes apart or begins to come apart in the 16th century. It doesn't all succeed in, in completely coming apart, but it begins seriously to come apart in the 16th century. And people are freer to develop um, voluntary affinities for things without that credentialization. One is encouraged to read Protestantism as, as the book of the word, uh, the, the religion of the word. And uh, reading, of course, creates all sorts of, uh, of ideas. And uh, the concept that if we all read scripture together, we would all come out with the same notion, a, a concept uh, espoused by many clerics in that period, is, is obviously nonsense. And it was nonsense then, too. Um, you, perhaps you see the, uh, the, the culmination of that nonsense in the uh, emergence of religious radical groups in the 15, 1640s and particularly 1650s, but, uh, you know, a period which produced uh, Baptists and Quakers and Muggletonians and, 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 uh, and, and Congregationalists, Unitarians, and so forth. Uh, each, uh, each interpreted things in their own way. That's inconceivable uh, to a large extent uh, prior to the Reformation. And, uh, and yet it's those very processes of thinking individually, independently, of, of reading, of writing voluntarily, uh, of forming one's own conclusions, which are absolutely essential to the concept of making publics. A more literate and more ideologically divided society created conditions in which people were no longer entirely restricted by the allegiances to which they were born they could begin to associate on the basis of their affinities. 
And in England, this loosening of social bonds was very much abetted, Robert Titler says, by the breakup of the monasteries and various other church-based societies. This breakup occurred in two stages. First, the monastic houses were dissolved, and then, in the 1540s, the associated religious guilds and fraternities to which the laity had belonged. Of the two events, Robert Titler thinks that the second had the greater impact on everyday life. The dissolution of the regular orders had much less effect, not to say no effect, but much less effect on the general population than the dissolution of the guilds, uh, fraternities, and so forth, which were present in almost every parish in the land. And most English men of any consequence at all um, were members, formally or informally, of some local parish guild uh, and so forth. These secured masses for the dead. These provided opportunities for daily, sometimes daily prayer and worship. And these were constantly enjoining good civil Christian behavior, charity. They enabled people to be in charity with the rest of the Christian community. Uh, monasteries did similar things, and they ran schools and, and so forth, but um, they did not uh, embrace the laity to the same extent. I think there is a vacuum created in, or potential vacuum created in the destruction of these things in one sense of service to the community, in one sense of what the community is, because there's no longer what I call the purgatorial imperative disappears. You no longer have to be in charity with your fellows in order to gain release from purgatory into heaven because purgatory is no longer there either. We might even say um, that it is abolished. I mean, the sense of purgatory in the Protestant tradition is, uh, is certainly not what it is in, in the Catholic tradition. And so this could have, and some historians will claim it did, uh, create a great breakdown in the moral order and in the sense of community and in the sense of civility and, uh, and everything that goes with it. Uh, and many have seen this exacerbating social relations and creating a great deal of friction. I don't think that's as extreme as I used to think it was. I mean, my views have modified on this a little bit. But certainly, society is seeking and knows that it needs uh, different institutional handmaidens, different ways of encouraging this kind of civic behavior. And I think that they find it in the elements of what come to be called citizenship. We, we you know, one, one exhibits charity toward one's fellows, not because it will result in a release from purgatory for one's own soul, but one does it because it will enhance the quality of life on earth and it will contribute to the common weal. And that's a subtle but I think very profound change wrought by the what we call the dissolution of the monasteries and the chantries and fraternities in the 1530s and 40s. It's a process that goes on over many decades thereafter. Robert Titler thinks that an ethos of citizenship gradually replaced what might be called a salvation-based morality. And he sees this process at work in the ceremonial life of English towns during the 16th century. Legislation adopted by the English Parliament in the 1530s had proscribed many traditional Catholic celebrations. Corpus Christi processions and plays had been outlawed, for example. Some traditions persisted anyway. There are records of Corpus Christi plays being performed as late as 1609, but even more important, Robert Titler says, was the way in which these old forms mutated into new ones. Many of these traditional ceremonial events uh, didn't so much come to an end, but were transformed to variant forms for slightly different purposes. Many of them get co-opted by civic authorities. And so you have instances, for example, of... Uh, in St. Mary's uh, Church uh, in Coventry, a former 
Abbey, I guess. Uh, the picture of the Virgin Mary comes down. Uh, it's, I'm sorry, the stained glass image of the Virgin Mary comes down in the mid-16th century after the Reformation begins, and it's replaced with an image of Lady Godiva. Well, that's interesting. Why Lady Godiva? Well, Lady Godiva, who is probably a real historical figure of the 12th century, has an historic association with the city of Coventry. She is the wife of the evil Earl Leofric, who imposes a very harsh penalty on the people of Coventry. And Godiva, his wife, sides with the people and says to her husband, if you will uh, 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 do away with this harsh tax, uh, I will agree to ride naked through the streets of the city. And so um, if you get off the rail station at Coventry today, you will immediately be uh, faced with um, the local tourist office uh, pointing you to an historic trail through the city, which is called Godiva's Way. She is, in a way, a secular saint of the city. And you would see the same thing in London with the image of King Ludd. Interestingly, in Bridport, in Dorset, uh, with the image of King Ludd, though Ludd had no particular association with Bridport. Geoffrey uh, of Monmouth, a uh, great medieval historian of fantastic imagination, um, said that London, the word London, is a contraction of Ludd's town, Ludd being a descendant of Brutus, uh, who is the founder of Britain, uh, Britain being Brutus's ton or place. Well, that folklore endures right into uh, the early 17th century in many cases, though some begin to question it at an earlier time. Uh, ceremony does very much get co-opted. Uh, even some of the same forms uh, become, um, instead of religious processions, they become civic processions. Uh, the carrying of the host through the streets uh, is replaced by the mayor, uh, preceded by the mace. Uh, the mayor wearing, of course, his mayoral robe uh, and the mace of office um, taking the place of, of the cross. Uh, you can see this. I've witnessed this in, uh, in Exeter where the mayor uh, in civic processions is preceded by the mace bearer. And you will see in many old town halls in England today uh, a mace stand in which the mace or maces, Exeter has five or six of them, uh, rest and are taken out in use in civic processions throughout the day. This is not waned. Uh, but it's transformed. If we if we trace that back, uh, we find ourselves in the middle of a religious procession of, you know, the 15th century. The civic rituals that Robert Titler sees as superseding older religious forms are characteristic of a new political consciousness that starts to emerge in the 16th century. New national identities begin to coalesce through the shaping of national languages, national literatures, and new types of government. These new forms of nationhood will be my theme in the next episode of The Origins of the Modern Public. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues tomorrow night. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio. <laughs>